As you're seated, if you have your copy of God's Word, I want to invite you to open up with me to Exodus chapter 22. Exodus chapter 22. In the month of, I'm sorry, in the year of 2019, we have been as a church walking through the book of Exodus. And what we've seen week after week is how God saves His people, how He sustains them in the wilderness, and then how He enters into a covenant with them, calling them to be His people and to submit to Him as their King. God most famously begins His covenant with what we call today the Ten Commandments or the Ten Words. These are the found, this is the foundation of this covenant that He enters into with Israel. But then after the Ten Commandments, He gives specific instructions to Israel to govern their life together. Now as we read about these laws, a lot of times it's easy to say these are irrelevant. These, these laws are so distant. The culture that they lived in was so different from us today. How is this relevant to my life? But what these laws do is they reveal the character of God that is unchanging. And these laws are filled with principles of justice that God gave Israel to help them be distinct from the nations, to be righteous and just in how they live. So this morning we come to Exodus 22 verses 1 through 15 and we see rules about property and restitution. And then I want to show you how these things lead into and apply to the Christian life. So let's read Exodus 22 verses 1 through 15 together. Verse 1. If a man steals an ox or a sheep and kills it or sells it, he shall repay five oxen for an ox and four sheep for a sheep. If a thief is found breaking in and is struck so that he dies, there shall be no blood guilt for him. He shall surely pay. If he has nothing... I'm sorry, I skipped a verse. Verse 2. If a thief is found breaking in and is struck so that he dies, there shall be no blood guilt for him. But if the sun has risen on him, there shall be blood guilt for him. He shall surely pay. If he has nothing, then he shall be sold for his theft. If the stolen beast is found alive in his possession, whether it is an ox or a donkey or a sheep, he shall pay double. If a man causes a field or vineyard to be grazed over or lets his beast loose and it feeds in another man's field, he shall make restitution from the best in his own field and his own vineyard. If fire breaks out and catches in thorns so that the stacked grain or the standing grain or the field is consumed, he who started the fire shall make full restitution." If a man gives to his neighbor money or goods to keep safe and it is stolen from the man's house, then if the thief is found, he shall pay double. If the thief is not found, the owner of the house shall come near to God to show whether or not he has put his hand to his neighbor's property. For every breach of trust, whether it is for an ox, for a donkey, for a sheep, for a cloak, or for any kind of lost thing of which one says, this is it, the case of both parties shall come before God." The one whom God condemns shall pay double to his neighbor. If a man gives to his neighbor a donkey or an ox or a sheep or any beast to keep safe, and it dies or is injured or is driven away without anyone seeing it, an oath by the Lord shall be between them. 
both to see whether or not he has put his hand to his neighbor's property. The owner shall accept the oath, and he shall not make, or he shall not make restitution. But if it is stolen from him, he shall make restitution to its owner. If it is torn by beasts, let him bring it as evidence. He shall not make restitution for what has been torn. If a man borrows anything from his neighbor and it is injured or dies, the owner not being with it, he shall make full restitution. If the owner was with it, he shall not make restitution. If it was hired, it came for its hiring fee. Interesting stuff, right? Very easy to read these things and think, Come on, Nick, pick a different text, right? Pick, pick something that seems to be more applicable to us today, right? But as I've said week in and week out, as we've looked at these slavery laws and arranged marriages and capital crimes and all these laws, that this is part of God's Word. And that God, whose unchanging character is worth focusing on, has inspired these things. And at a certain point in history, these were the laws He gave His people. So they reflect a part of His character, and therefore they're profitable for us. So what I want to do this morning in trying to make sense of these verses is I want to explain these different laws. I want to look at and think through the principles that God's giving Israel that are underneath these laws that are applicable today. And then I want to do a deep dive on how these truths do apply very practically into our lives. So first point this morning is we see in our text, God gives personal property laws. Let's walk through them. Verse 1 and verse 4 say if you steal an animal and you kill it or you sell it, then you have to pay back four to five times the value to the owner you stole from. But if your stolen goods are found in good condition, then you only have to pay back double. Why? Because the value that was taken away from the owner is not as much. What's stolen and the condition that it's found in determines what the thief will owe to the owner. In between verses 1 and 4, we see verses 2 and 3 detail that an owner, what they can do in response to a break-in. This is kind of like a modern-day stand-your-ground law. He says if it's nighttime when the owner can't tell, the, they can't assess the situation and tell the threat, then the owner of the home who's being broken into is justified to defend his home, even to use deadly force if necessary. But if it's daytime and therefore light, if the owner is able to assess how significant the threat is, then they can determine, based on what they see, what kind of action is necessary. The homeowner's guilt or innocence will be dictated by the situation and the time of day. If killing the thief is not necessary, but he chooses to kill anyway, then he will be held accountable. But if he catches the thief and turns him in, then the thief will either have to pay for what he tried to steal, or if he can't, he'll be sold as a servant to pay off his debt to the person he was trying to steal from. So there's theft scenarios that God includes. Verses 5 and 6 deal with animals grazing on other people's property, starting fires that cross property lines and ruin what someone else owns. And God's command is is that you have to be responsible for your actions or for your negligence, and you have to pay for the losses of property that you cause for somebody else. Verse 9 details a situation where two men are arguing over the rightful ownership of something. 
And it says that they must go to God. They must, what that literally means is go to God's leaders, the elders of Israel, to decide the case. The one who is lying about the possession of this possession, the, the, the uh, ownership of this possession is required to pay double for attempting to steal it from the rightful owner. And then verses 7 and 8 and verses 10 through 15 deal with borrowing and lending. Remember, in this day, there was no such thing as a bank. There was no such thing as safety deposit boxes. So it was common when you had to go somewhere to leave your most valuable possessions with your neighbors. What happens when you leave and you leave something with your neighbors and you get back and it's been stolen while under the watch of someone else? Verse 7 says that if the thief is found, then they pay double. But if the thief isn't found, then the person who loaned their or who, who asked their neighbor to watch their things are naturally going to be suspicious and say, What's keeping my neighbor from just saying it was stolen and keeping it for himself? So what happens is verse 8 says the safekeeper has to go to God's leaders, the elders, and tell them what happened, and they will determine whether or not the story adds up. If it doesn't, then he's responsible to pay back the price of the goods that were stolen. If his case does add up, and he is in the clear, then he's not responsible to pay anything. Similarly, if your animal dies, if it's injured, or if it runs away while under the watch of a neighbor, they must swear an oath to the Lord that they're telling the truth, that it wasn't their negligence that led to the loss of your property. If it was stolen due to their negligence, then they must make restitution. But if it was killed by another animal while under your watch, and you can provide evidence that that's what happened, then you don't have to pay. Verses 14 and 15 deal with a scenario where someone has borrowed something and while it is borrowed, it gets broken or injured or if it's an animal, it dies. If the borrower wasn't with it and therefore its death was due to negligence, then they must pay. But if they were with it and they were trying to take care of it but it was outside of their control, then they need not pay. If it was rented, then the rental fee for the animal should have been included in the payment needed for the loss of property. Okay, so why does this matter? Why of all the things that God could include in His book of the covenant to detail how Israel was to live together, why does He include all these things about property loss and borrowing and lending? Because in an agrarian economy, everyone was farmers. In an agrarian economy, your animals were your currency. Israel needed crystal clear laws and principles from God about what to do in situations that involve property loss because amongst a fallen people, this stuff would be happening every day. And if there was no law, if there was no word from the Lord, then Israel would not be living as a distinct and just people. Instead, it would be just straight up an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, you make your own justice. Instead, God gives very specific laws about how to live together. And what we can see in and underneath each of these laws is the heart and the mind and the wisdom of a just God whose character never changes. Seeing that these, these principles, these, these just laws are rooted in the character of God leads us to our second truth. And that's this. These laws highlight principles of justice that reflect God's character. So what principles are found as we think through these? As we look under the specific law, what rules and principles of God's character 
can we pull out and apply to our own lives? Well, first, personal property was assumed. Everything ultimately that we own is God's, and it's on loan to us. Your land, your house, your money, your job, your health, your possessions, everything you have, you might have worked for it, you might have paid for it, but ultimately, because God made us and owns us, it's God's. But that reality doesn't mean that we don't have the right to property that we have paid for. Now, some will say, well, what about the book of Acts? What happens in the book of Acts when the new church begins? Didn't the new church some, somehow, some way, appear to operate like a commune? As people were selling their possessions, selling their homes, selling their property, sharing everything that they had? Is that what it means? Well, here's a question to consider. In the rest of the book of Acts, after those kind of things were happening in the other church, and in the rest of the New Testament... Where did believers gather together? Did they build big churches in Ephesus and Colossae and Corinth? No. They gathered together where? In people's homes. People's homes who owned their homes. They owned property. They owned clothing. They paid for food. They owned possessions. What that means is, is that... The book of Acts is not an early version of the Communist Manifesto. Instead, the book of Acts is an example of spirit-filled people who are sacrificially meeting the need of other people and generously giving to God and others. Why? Because of how much God has given them. It's not telling us that personal property is not allowed among believers. Instead, it's saying because of God has given us so much in Christ, we are freed up and rejoice in being able to give to and meet other people's needs with what God has given us. So in the Old Testament and New Testament, personal property was assumed and was even protected by God's Law. So that's one principle we can pull out. Another is this, and it echoes something that I emphasized last week. And that's this, that we need to pursue justice, not vengeance when we're wronged. We need to pursue justice, not vengeance when wronged. Someone stepping their foot on your property does not require immediate lethal force. When it is in our ability to restrain evil, God expects us as His people to pursue the most just action. And that means that while we need to be ready to protect our loved ones and fight if necessary, our immediate instinct should not be to destroy anyone in our path. True justice requires far more self-control and wisdom and spirit power than that. I'm not saying don't defend your family. I'm not saying if someone breaks into your house that this is exactly what you need to do. I'm saying we need to consider as believers what the most just course of action is because we are called to pursue justice, not vengeance. The third principle that we find that underlies these laws is really found in particular in verse 9, and that's this. Finders keepers is not God's way. Finders keepers is not God's way. If you find something, that does not make it yours. 
And instead of claiming it for ourselves, or worse, lying about our ownership of it when the true owner shows up looking for it, we should seek aggressively to return lost property and to find the owner at all costs. Right? That's what we're called to do. That's what you do when you're just. You don't just find something and pocket it and say, thanks God for letting someone else's misfortune be my uh, benefit. Finders keepers is not God's way, even if maybe we've been operating with that assumption since grade school. The last and most important principle in these laws is that true restitution for lost property was required. In Israel, as God's people, you can't steal something and then say, sorry, and that's the end of it. You have to pay them back. Like, you actually have to do something to make up for your wrong. And as an incentive to keep you from being a thief, you're not just going to pay back what you stole, you're going to pay back far more than you stole. At minimum, double. But depending on what it is, sometimes up to four and five times what you stole. In Israel, under God's law, you cannot be negligent with someone else's property and then when it's damaged, just say, hey, listen, my bad, I didn't mean to do it. No, you have to do what's right. And you have to pay them back for what you did by repairing or replacing whatever it is that you broke or killed. So, notice here, the thieves aren't sent to jail. There is no jail. There is no prison system in Israel. Instead of going to jail, instead of paying a fine to the temple or to the government for breaking the law, you had to go face to face to the person that you stole from and either pay them back and acknowledge that you did it and it was wrong, or if you couldn't pay them back, you had to start working for them to pay it back. It was all about personal responsibility. There was not a middleman that you could pay and not have to own up for what you did. There was no jail, there was no prison, there was restitution. And if you refuse restitution, then I would imagine there was death. This is how things operated in God's theocracy where God is king. You didn't just pay your time, but you actually paid the individual back for what you did. So the underlying principles of justice found here is that these laws elevate personal property as legitimate. They guard against unjust vengeance They prevent a finder's keeper's mentality and they require real restitution to be made for theft or for negligence. Now you might be here this morning on Labor Day weekend thinking, I didn't go out of town, I'm not at the beach like some people, and I come and the preacher's talking about property loss laws in Israel thousands of years ago. You might not be someone who's here who's regularly loaning out animals or allowing them to graze on other people's property, or having other people watch your possessions when you're out of town. So how do these principles apply to the new covenant believer today? Why does this matter, and how does it affect me as I walk out of this building when the service is over? That leads to our final point. And it's a long one, so if you're thinking, man, we're flying. Yeah, just wait. Making restitution for wrongs is a form of repentance. 
Making restitution for wrongs is a form of repentance, which is a fruit of God's Spirit. The most obvious way that these principles apply to us today is when you do something wrong, you need to make it right. Even if it's an accident. If you do something wrong, you need to make it right. If you claim to follow Jesus Christ and if you claim that God is the one who you love with all your heart, soul, mind, and streak. If you break somebody's property, you need to pay for damages. Kids, if you break someone's property, if you break a window, you need to go own up to what you did and pay for the losses. If you're a student and you cheat on a test, you need to own up to it and go tell your teacher and take the failing grade. Why? Not because it will help your grade, but because God is your king. And God knows and God cares that we do things in the right way. If you're driving and you bump a parked car, it's not okay to drive away. You need to find the owner or leave a note. You need to do something to make it right. If you break the law of the land, you need to own up to it and take consequences. If you find a possession that is somebody else owns or some lost money, you need to seek to find the owner. If you steal something, you need to return it. You need to take it to the owner, apologize for what you've done, and deal with whatever consequences come as a result of these things. These are all obvious, basic Christianity 101. But what if your stealing is not an actual possession that you can put your hands on? What if your theft instead is taking money from the government and from taxpayers claiming to be disabled when in reality you are able to take care of yourself and provide for yourself? What if your theft is not actually breaking into someone's house and taking something from someone, but instead it's asking your neighbor or your family or even your church to meet your needs when the reason those needs exist is because you're not working hard or you're financially irresponsible and you're wasting and squandering what God has provided for you. What about the money that you're receiving under the table for work that you're not paying taxes for? Getting in your business. Friends, these things happen every day, all the time. We all know that they're happening and they're wrong. And true, lived out Christianity requires that believers do what is right and do what is just and make restitution in the best way that we can. God required His old covenant people, Israel, to make restitution for property loss, property damage, and theft. And they didn't even have the Holy Spirit dwelling inside of them. They didn't even have Jesus who had come and died for their sins. So the same thing is true for new covenant, born-again, spirit-filled believers today. We can do nothing less than apply these principles very practically into our life. That's why Paul describes the Christian life in Ephesians 4.28 and says, Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor doing honest work with his own hands. Why? So that he may have something to share with anything in need. That's why Paul says in Romans 13, 7, pay to all what is owed them, taxes to whom taxes are owed, revenue to whom revenue is owed, respect to whom respect is owed, honor to whom honor is owed. Paul says these things not because doing those things saves us, but because when we're truly saved and transformed, we will live with Jesus as Lord and King, with His Word as our book of truth that guides us, and part of the normal Christian life life is transformation. 
honesty, justice, living to serve, giving generously to those who need, and even making restitution to those we owe. We're not just called as believers to stop doing evil, but to replace those old acts of the flesh with new spirit filled actions for the Lord. By the Spirit's help, we're not just called to stop being a thief, but we're called to work hard so that we can give generously and serve others. What all this means is this. Your faith has to have legs. It has to do something. You can't just say, I believe in God. If you actually believe in God, and you believe the gospel, then it's going to affect the way you live, the way you treat others, the way you think, the way you spend money, the way you pursue justice, the way you do business. That's what conversion is. God doesn't just give us a ticket out of hell. He doesn't just forgive us and say, look forward to heaven. He saves us and forgives us, but He also changes us and transforms us. That is Christianity 101. I want you, if you say you love Jesus, but you're living like hell, to feel really uncomfortable when you come to Galleon. Really uncomfortable. Why? Because I don't want you to think you're right with God if the gospel you believe is not transforming your life because when we really believe the gospel, we're really born again and the Spirit of God really lives in us, it changes us. So the most gracious, loving thing that I can do is to tell the truth. It might not seem gracious and loving on Sunday morning, but on Judgment Day it will be the most gracious and loving thing that I can do from a pulpit and that you can do in your Life. We know Paul's famous conversion story on the Damascus Road where he was transformed from being a religious terrorist to the greatest missionary to walk the earth. We know Peter's conversion story where he walked away from his livelihood as a fisherman to become what? A fisher of men and an apostle used by Jesus to turn the world upside down. We know the story of Abraham who left his homeland and his family to follow God's call in his life. We know the story of Moses where God changed him from being a timid shepherd to the deliverer of Israel and the mediator between God and Israel. These stories turned these men's life around because true conversion always turns our life around. And as we think about this idea in the Old Testament of restitution and justice and conversion, don't forget the story of the wee little man Zacchaeus. Zacchaeus was a wee little man, a wee little man was he. He climbed up in a sycamore tree for the Lord he wanted to see, right? He was a wee little man. But let me tell you about Zacchaeus. This was a wee little man that had a big, massive bank account. A big, massive bank account that he had unjustly gained as a tax collector, fleecing the people of Israel. But when Jesus called him to come down to that sycamore tree for he needed to go eat with him and spend time with him, that day Zacchaeus came face to face with the Savior and the King Jesus. And when Zacchaeus got saved, he didn't just say, Sorry Jesus that I'm a thief. I'll try to do better next time and continue to enjoy living in luxury. No. We actually... 
read in, in the text in Luke that he gave away well beyond what God required him to in law, over half of his possessions. Why? Why would he do that? Was he required to do that? Why? What would make a man do that? Amen, brother. Because he realized in encountering Jesus that he had not just come to face with any old man, with any old religious teacher, but he had come face to face with God himself. He had come face to face with the true treasure that would never fade. And he realized that when he had Jesus, he didn't need money. He didn't need reputation. He didn't need power. He didn't need security. When he had Jesus, he didn't need the things of this world any longer. When he had Jesus, he was willing not only to pay restitution for how he had gotten rich in the first place, but he was willing to generously and sacrificially give far more than God expected. Why? Because God opened his eyes and changed his heart, and he had a new treasure. He wasn't living for this world anymore. That's why. The biblical word for for what he did there in making restitution and responding with radical acts of faith is repentance. Repentance sounds like something people who stand on street corners yell at people, right? And repentance in a church setting is sadly only thought about and mentioned often when we think about someone first getting saved, the initial conversion experience. Repentance is turning away from our sin. And it's true. We have to repent of our sins and believe in Jesus in order to be saved. But when someone is truly born again and transformed from the inside out, when someone is truly justified and forgiven for their sin, repentance is not just a one-time event that happens on the night or the day that they give their life to the Lord. Instead, repentance is a new lifestyle. Repentance is a posture towards their sin that they carry with them day after day after day. True repentance is not just saying you're sorry. Have you ever, if you're a parent, have you ever had a child who maybe does the same thing that they shouldn't do over and over and over and over again and like the thousandth time you just, you're fed up with it? Probably if you're a parent you have experienced this. Or else you're not paying attention, right? Be a better parent. So, so, so you've experienced this. I have even found myself with, with kids, my own children, when they tell me they're sorry for like the 50th time, be like, I'm not interested in your sorry. I'm interested in your change. I'm not interested in your words. If you're really sorry, you'll show me, right? That, 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 that's a conversation. Grace-filled parenting. That's my uh, next sermon. So, so, so I'll say that. Why? Because if someone truly is sorry, it's going to affect their choices. It's going to affect their words. It's going to affect their actions. True repentance is far more than saying, I'm sorry. Anyone can say they're sorry. Anyone can feel bad for what they've done in an emotional moment. Anybody. It happens all the time. Anyone can cry tears and say, sorry, God, I know I need to get this right. But friends, it's very possible to do that every week at church and then to walk out the door and make no changes. That's not repentance. That's what Paul calls in 2 Corinthians worldly sorrow that leads to judgment. True repentance, true godly sorrow is more than that. 
it can involve an emotional response. It does involve admitting your sin and asking God for forgiveness. But true repentance has legs. True godly sorrow does something about it. True godly sorrow is willing to make restitution for the harm and hurt that you've caused others. True repentance means that you're willing to do whatever it takes to put that, de- that sin to death from here on. You can feel conviction. You can feel something going on and respond emotionally without truly being repentant. That's why people live their lives, their spiritual lives in particular, based on emotional feelings. I felt this. I had this experience at church or during the music or during the preaching or in this setting. Something happened and I could feel something. Well, if whatever happened was real, it's going to change you when you walk out. And if not, then it might not have been God that you felt. It's very important for us to, to have a category for this. Because when repentance is real, then you change. Not perfectly, not even instantly. We're not claiming here that to truly be a believer and to truly be repentant, that you're a perfect person who struggles in no way. No. If you're perfect, you need to be up here teaching and you should have wrote the Bible. None of us are perfect. All of us have doubts. All of us have temptations. All of us are living lives or should be of constant repentance. But when repentance is real, nevertheless, you change no matter the cost. Why? Because when you truly encounter Jesus in a saving way, He opens up your blind eyes to see Jesus for who He truly is. He brings life to your dead heart so that you glory in God and His grace and His mercy and His justice. You realize it's not all about you. The Spirit of God indwells you and changes you. He picks you up and turns you around and sets you on a new path and in a new direction. That's what conversion is. And when that has truly happened, then you realize that Jesus is your treasure. Jesus is your king. Jesus is worth it. I talk to people all the time as a pastor. You probably talk to people all the time too, just as as folks who come come and hang around church, who are interested in Jesus. They want to know more about Him. They're seeking something. A lot of times people will kind of be seeking God and trying this church thing out because their life's falling apart. And they think, if I just get right with God, then he'll make everything in my life easy. (laughs) Read the Bible, right? That's not what happens. Uh, Actually, it guarantees trials. Why? Because God's goal is not to make you happy. It's to make you holy. But people will come and talk to me all the time about their interest in Jesus. Sometimes they want to know about how to get saved. Sometimes they want to talk about baptism or church membership or a whole host of other things. And I love having those conversations. But every one of those conversations eventually comes to the topic of repentance. Why? Because when someone is truly right with God, they will be repentant over their sin. They will be willing to do whatever it takes to put it to death. They will be willing to make whatever restitution is needed to pay back their wrongs and to obey God. True repentance. Repentance doesn't make the list in Galatians 6 of fruits of the Spirit. Galatians 5 or 6, one of those. You know what it is. It doesn't make the list. Love, joy, peace, patience, and all of those. But it's a fruit of the Spirit. Repentance is evidence That God is truly working in your life. Not worldly sorrow, godly sorrow. 
And if you don't have a posture of repentance towards your sin, if you're not living out that beatitude of being poor in spirit and mourning over your sin, then you will find yourself comfortably living in sin, making excuses for and justifying it, refusing Jesus' lordship over your life, proving that your faith is fake, your conversion was a counterfeit, and your future, if nothing changes, is the fires of judgment. True salvation always involves initial repentance, but also an ongoing posture of repentance. So professing believer this morning, those who say with their mouth, I am a follower of Christ, let me ask you, are you living your life daily repenting of your sin, agreeing with God that is wrong, willing to do whatever it takes to put it to death, or have you grown comfortable with rebellion in your life? If you're here this morning, friend, and you don't know the Lord, and you're kind of sitting on the fence about whether or not you should commit to Jesus, let me ask you a question. Are you willing to follow Jesus no matter the cost, no matter what it means you must do or give up? Or are you instead just wanting fire insurance, but not looking for Him to be King and Lord of your life? Friends, whether you're saved or a seeker, how you answer those questions have eternal implications. And true repentance might look a whole lot of different ways for a whole lot of different people. True repentance for you might look like paying back a debt that you owe, offering forgiveness to a person who you've held a grudge against for far too long, Or maybe being honest in an area of your life where you for a long time have been deceptive. True repentance for you might look like even turning yourself in for a crime you've committed because it's the right thing to do. It might look like removing yourself from living in a sinful living arrangement or having a hard conversation with someone where you apologize to them for things that you've said about them when they weren't there. It might look like finally getting real accountability for that lust issue that's been plaguing you for years. It might look like apologizing publicly for a public sin that you've committed. It might look like making big changes in your life because you've forsaken your Lord in your pursuit of earthly riches. True repentance can manifest itself in a whole host of different ways. But let me tell you this about true repentance. It will never be easy and it will never be convenient. But neither was the cross for our Savior Jesus. On that cross, Jesus made full and final restitution for our sin. On that cross, Jesus paid back the debt that we owe to God for our sin. As we sang earlier, I hope that you thought about the words we were singing. What riches of kindness He lavished on us. His blood was the payment. His life was the cost. We stood neath a debt we could never afford. Our sins, they are many. But His mercy is more. Jesus Christ sacrificed His comfort and His life 
to purchase our salvation, to make us holy, and to give us the gift of repentance. And that gift of repentance empowers us to live for God and not ourselves, to live for His kingdom and not our own. That that work that He did, that sacrifice that He made, that repentance that He purchased for us qualifies us to spend eternity at peace with God with nothing to fear and nothing to hide. We don't do what is right and make restitution for our wrongs. We don't live lives of repentance so we can earn God's favor and make Him pleased with us and make Him forgive us. We don't do these things to save ourselves by our good works. We do these things and we live this life as an overflow of joy and worship because we already have God's favor through Jesus' finished work for us. Jesus paid it all. All to Him I owe. Jesus paid it all. Jesus made restitution. And when He is our Savior, when He is truly our King, He will empower us by His Spirit to be fair and to be just. To make things right that we've made wrong. And to have a posture of repentance all our days as we live on this earth practicing for eternity when there will be no more sin. If Jesus is real to you, if your salvation is the real thing, then that is your story and your experience. And I hope and pray this morning that if you claim to be His follower, that your life matches the profession of faith that you voice with your mouth. I pray that if you claim that Jesus is real to you, that repentance is your daily posture towards sin. And I hope and pray that as we close, if that's not your story, if that's not your experience, that you will not delay getting right with God through faith in Jesus, that you will not delay getting right with others, no matter the cost. Jesus is a treasure better than all property. Jesus makes restitution for sin that we could never pay back. Jesus grants us the gift of repentance. It is all about Jesus. Look to Him and respond to Him and consider Him this morning. Will you bow your heads and close your eyes with me? As our musicians come up and begin to play our hymn of response, and as our deacons who will be serving the Lord's Supper come up to the front row to to get ready,